1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into part one of episode 57 of the Black Hand Pod, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host Bliss Grieve and on today's show we're going to begin our multi-part deep dive into the history of one of the biggest scourges affecting the law enforcement sector today, deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And today in part one, we're going to be talking about the culture within the sheriff's department that allowed the formation of these groups to start, the very first deputy gangs to form up in the 1970s, like the Little Devils and Cavemen, who crafted the idea of what a deputy gang is, and finally, the rise of the Linwood Vikings, one of the most violent, depraved, and notorious deputy gangs to ever run the streets as well as their reign of terror in the Linwood community that resulted in the city paying out $8 million. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description. But without further ado, Let's get right into today's episode. To start, we have to go back to a time when deputy gangs hadn't even formed yet, at least not that we know of, because to understand how they were even able to come about, we have to understand the very culture that allowed it to happen. For starters, following his election in 1958, the 28th Sheriff of LA County, Peter Pitches, oversaw a new wave of aggressive expansion and modernization. He introduced policies that drove disproportionate violence towards black and Latino communities and whose legacies still persist today, including the introduction of billy clubs, helicopters, freeway pursuits, and the county's very first SWAT team, one of the first in the entire U.S., and in a show of the sort of race-based violence that these reforms would lead to, as well as the sheriff's department, at best, tepid response to any brutality carried out by their deputies. On August 29, 1970, during a march organized by the Chicano Moratorium, numbering anywhere from 20 to 30,000 people, a reporter and civil rights activist named Ruben Salazar was killed. A deputy named Thomas Wilson fired a tear gas canister into the Silver Dollar Cafe at the conclusion of the rally, killing Salazar. But despite this, Wilson was never disciplined, let alone prosecuted, for his actions. And many even regard the killing of Salazar as an assassination, since he was one of the more prominent voices for the movement. His death ignited criticism for the department and resulted in the longest coroner's request in the county's history. 
and though Salazar's family eventually settled with the county for $700,000, Sheriff Pitches maintained, quote, that there was absolutely no misconduct on the part of the deputies involved in the incident or the procedures that followed. And it was due in large part to the very changes Pitches enacted, as well as the wanton police brutality that had become an established and neglected fact within the sheriff's department that the first deputy gangs started to form in the early 1970s. The Little Devils was a deputy gang based out of the East Los Angeles station as far back as 1970, making it one of the earliest known gangs. Formed by deputies working at the East Los Angeles station, who appear to take pride in the terror they inflicted on the community during the Chicano movement, especially during the 1970 rally where Salazar was killed. Identified by a tattoo of a little red devil, typically on the left calf, and by 1973, LASD management learned of the Little Devils during an investigation of alleged misconduct by two deputies affiliated with the clique. With Captain R.D. Campbell investigating and compiling a list of all known tattooed Little Devils, which totaled around 47 members by this point. Despite that, it's unknown if any discipline or consequences were imposed though it's pretty unlikely. Another one of the early deputy gangs to emerge, called the Cavemen, also came out of the East Los Angeles station after the Little Devils were exposed. Members have a common tattoo that depicts a cartoon caveman with flies near its head, each one marking an incident of violence against a civilian. And for many years, there was even a caveman mural on a wall in the conference room of the East LA station, which was eventually covered up when other deputy gangs started to grow in popularity and influence. Captain Ramon Sanchez claims that the moniker came from a nickname for a bunk room in the men's locker room of the East LA station called The Cave. And Sanchez started looking into the group in the late 80s when he heard the deputies had caveman tattoos, though once again, it's unclear if any of the deputies with tattoos were disciplined. Whatever the case, though, their effects can still be felt today, as the last sheriff, Alex Villanueva's second-in-command, Timothy Murakami, who served as undersheriff, was an alleged member of the cavemen. And even though Villanueva has publicly acknowledged the existence of the cavemen while he worked at the East LA station, he stressed that he was never a member. Regardless, by the 1980s, even more deputy gangs started popping up than ever before. A new group formed within the Peter J. Pitches Detention Center north of Los Angeles called the Wayside Whiteys. And though it's unknown whether or not members had a common tattoo, Whiteys did employ W hand signals to signify their membership. And on December 2, 1989, a 21-year-old inmate named Clydell Crawford, was attacked by multiple Whitey's members, who beat him with their flashlights, landing over 30 blows to his head, torso, and legs, continuing to beat him until his leg was broken. After the attack was finally over, the deputies told Crawford to hop on his uninjured leg to the medical department. Once inside a treatment area, the officers negligently left Crawford laying in a gurney underneath a row of payphones, 
So he called his parents, told them where he was, and they came the following morning, at which point he hired a lawyer and never went back to the detention center. And in 1990, they sued Los Angeles County for civil rights violations, with Crawford and three other former African-American inmates alleging that they were assaulted because of their race. The complaint also alleged that the Wayside Whiteys were, quote, a KKK-type organization espousing white supremacy and having as one of its objectives the subjugation, intimidation, and terrorization of African-American inmates. But of course, the case never made it to trial, and Crawford settled for a mere $60,000 and was made to sign an affidavit saying that he wouldn't pursue any action on residual injuries. Crawford says that he chose to settle because his father was ill with colon cancer, and with no insurance, he was set to lose the family home. But he didn't have the benefit of considering that over 30 years later, he'd still suffer from splitting headaches and consistent aching in his leg. And more than that, like almost all of the other cases of deputy gang member misconduct, it's unknown whether or not those involved face any kind of disciplinary action. However, things would only get worse from that point on. On March 8, 1988, Hong Pyo Lee was driving through the Compton area in the early morning. The 21-year-old was working 50 to 60 hours a week at his family's liquor store in Anaheim and had just signed up for auto mechanic classes at an L.A. trade school. But sadly, his life was about to be cut short. Because LASD deputies claimed that they witnessed Lee run a stop sign and pulled behind him, asking him to stop. They said Lee then accelerated and led them on a chase across freeways and surface streets towards Long Beach, with two local police officers joining in. Despite these claims, however, Lee's speed never exceeded 45 miles per hour. He then came to a stop at a railway siding across from a factory, an area that was one way in and one way out. Sheriff Sergeant at the time, Paul Tanaka, who would eventually serve as second-in-command of the department and be convicted for crimes committed while in that position, along with deputies Robert Papini, Daniel MacLeod, and Brian Lee, stopped about 15 feet behind Lee and drew their guns. As Deputy John Chapman approached Lee's car and ordered him to surrender, at which point investigators say that out of nowhere, all of the deputies opened fire, shooting Lee nine times in the back, killing him. A Long Beach police officer who responded to the scene named Richard Boatwright turned to his partner and said, quote, We just observed the sheriffs execute somebody. In the aftermath, the 12-page report from the district attorney, Ira Rayner, acknowledged several inconsistencies between the accounts shared by the officers on scene that night. For one, the deputies told investigators that Lee started to back his car up when they shot at him, but they couldn't agree on how fast he was moving. And of course, the two Long Beach officers said that Lee never reversed his vehicle at all. And in fact, Reiner's report noted that Lee's car was found crashed into a fence 120 feet away from where the shooting occurred. Lee's family also noted bruising on his face, 
But despite all of that, Reiner ultimately found that the sheriff's deputies acted in self-defense when they fired. No charges were filed, and the department never publicly indicated that any of the deputies were disciplined. Though, Lee's family did file a federal lawsuit shortly after his death, alleging that his civil rights were violated. And although they didn't know it yet, the world had finally stumbled upon yet another sheriff deputy gang called the Linwood Vikings, which remains one of the most violent and notorious deputy gangs to have ever run the streets. To become a member, the deputy first had to show that he was okay with the type of misconduct that the Vikings indulged in, like falsifying reports to prove loyalty to fellow deputies. And once the deputy became a member, he got the gang's common tattoo of a Viking head, sometimes with the number 998, which is the radio code for an officer-involved shooting, but the design is always located on the left calf. The Vikings were mostly made up of white men, though they would occasionally recruit deputies of other ethnicities, like Paul Tanaka. The gang also added some Latinx and four black members, but deputies of color who joined the group had their tattoos modified to denote their heritage. The Vikings were likely founded sometime in the early 80s, and possibly as early as the 70s, because they were already pretty active by 1985, but their first recorded victims weren't citizens. Instead, they were fellow deputies. For one example, in 1985, Deputy Kathy Kay recorded Linwood Lieutenant Walker Force's personal car as stolen into a county computer and according to court documents, even said that the driver of the vehicle was quote-unquote armed and dangerous. And even though Kay was charged with making a false criminal report, she was ultimately acquitted by a jury after a 10-day trial. The force's testimony illuminated the tactics that the Vikings employed to harass other LSD members. He would testify that he and other top Linwood brass were repeatedly harassed by fellow deputies. He said that the captain of the station at the time, Nick Popovich, had obscene phrases spray-painted in his parking spot. Force received prank phone calls, had the fender kicked off his car, and received a Valentine's Day gift with a dead rat inside. He even said that two deputies tried to run him down in their car, and in a separate report, wrote that two hearses had been dispatched to his house at 3 a.m. But like we talked about a little bit earlier, it was in 1988 that the Vikings officially graduated from harassing fellow officers to carrying out extrajudicial killings on the street. Though that of Hong Pyo Lee wouldn't be the only one that the Vikings carried out around that time, because in 1988, one year after joining the Vikings, Paul Tanaka was named in a wrongful death lawsuit that the LASD settled for almost $1 million. However, by 1989, with this rise in deputy violence coming out of the Linwood station, Sheriff Lee Baca sent Captain Burt Cueva to stamp out the Vikings. And the first step of that was to phase out the Viking logo after a resident expressed concern over how it was perceived in the majority POC neighborhood. Cueva himself 
so that he knew of at least one instance where the gang's tag was scratched into the horn on the steering wheel of a patrol car. But when the captain removed a large Viking flag hanging in the station and replaced it with one showing a representation of the area, the replacement flag was promptly stolen, which only served to enrage the Vikings. And members of senior brass became subject to even more constant harassment from the gang. For example, Sergeant Pippin, a black man who was later inked as a Viking, received a loaded gun in the mail, raked a fire upon the package opening. While Sergeant Stan White allegedly had dead mice placed in the back of his car, cow tongues hung in his locker, and guns pulled on him, eventually forcing White to relocate outside of the Linwood station. But even as the Vikings continued to oust their superiors, and Captain Cueva ordered the transfer of alleged Viking members, four sued him for discrimination, that the suits were eventually dismissed. Despite that, they were all transferred to what would be considered choice assignments, and one of the deputies even rose to the rank of sergeant. And by 1990, the Vikings were the subject of the LAADS Dispatcher, the official newspaper of the Association of Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs, which printed a photo of three Linwood deputies flashing the Viking hand sign. And by this point, the gang's regular activities included murder, assault with deadly weapons, trespassing in homes, and torture. Members also spray-painted walls and power poles around their jurisdiction to mark their quote-unquote turf. A Vikings tag turned up at the Los Angeles County Criminal Court outside the door of Judge Lance Ito, who oversaw the O.J. Simpson case, while two deputies also reported a tag carved onto two additional vehicles. However, as the investigation into the gang wore on, the county stands on the killing of Hong Pyo Lee at the hand of Viking Paul Tanaka finally changed. And in April 1990, two years after the killing, Lee's family accepted a $1 million settlement funded entirely by taxpayers. Despite that, it's believed that Paul Tanaka's role in the killing of Lee solidified his position in the gang, earning him both his Viking tattoo and a promotion to lieutenant just a year after joining the gang. The investigation into the Vikings also uncovered several incidents that would later become part of a federal lawsuit, including an incident that went down on October 16, 1989, when Demetrio Carrillo stopped to speak with a woman receiving a citation from a deputy sheriff, at which point Carrillo was approached by deputies Elizabeth Smith and Anthony Campbell and beaten. They then arrested Carrillo and charged him with resisting arrest but he was ultimately acquitted in trial, an experience similar to nearly a hundred other victims in the federal case. The lawsuit also states that on February 10, 1990, a man named William Leonard was shot and killed by deputies Alan Martin, Todd Wallace, Gerald Thompson, Chris Young, Timothy Benson, Scott McCormick, Ronald Gilbert, Abel Moreno, Byron Waney, Robert Bloom, Steve Blair, John West, Stephen Downey, Neil Gittesarn, 
and six unidentified deputies. Leonard was shot 27 times while unarmed and witnessed by his teenage daughter. Then, on February 11, 1990, there would be three separate incidents carried out, the first one being at 11162 Virginia in Linwood, where deputies Jason Mann, Edward Nodskog, John Chapman, Gary Blackwell, Michael Wilbur, Lance Fralick, Juan Alvarado, and at least 10 others attacked and savagely beat a 21-year-old named Lloyd Polk. Though the reports that deputies filed lacked sufficient evidence and the criminal charges against Polk were dismissed at the preliminary hearing. Then, at the 5100 block of Beechwood, six unidentified deputies stopped and detained a Latino man named Fernando Martinez. During the arrest, the deputies shoved Martinez's head into the side of the deputy's vehicle until the window cracked. Martinez was denied medical attention following the incident. While just two blocks away, at 11144 Virginia Avenue, deputies Mann, Nordskog, John Chapman, Gary Blackwell, Michael Wilbur, Lance Fralick, Juan Alvarado, and four unidentified deputies dragged Jose Ortega, a Latino man, and Aaron Breitigam, a white man, off the front porch, hitting the young men repeatedly in the back with a metal flashlight. Both were released at the scene and the officers left, but a neighbor who witnessed the beatings called in a complaint to the Linwood station, and the unidentified deputies returned under the direction of Sergeant Yarbrough, and though they took Ortega to St. Francis Hospital for x-rays and treatment for his injury, at the hospital, deputies Mann and Nordskog, who promptly arrested him, and instead of receiving medical treatment, he was charged by the district attorney and prosecuted. And just a few days later, on February 15, 1990, Alvin Washington, Jeffrey Holloman, Danny Williams, and Charles Scott, all black, were gathered at Washington's auto repair shop. When deputies Dan Ramo, Timothy Benson, Kevin Gorin, Brian Steinwand, John Carina, Joseph Holmes, and two unidentified deputies entered and ransacked the shop. Washington's safe, auto-diagnostic computer, tools, equipment, and files were damaged and as they tore the inside of the shop apart, the deputies held guns to the heads of Holloman and Williams. Deputies kicked them both, pushed Holloman's face into the ground, and stomped on his hand, dislocating his thumb. Then, about two weeks after the auto shop incident, six botched raids occurred on March 1st, 1990. In one incident, deputies James Witten, Richard Calzada, Daniel Cooper, Robert Windrum, James Pacina, James Corrigan, Timothy Glover, Frustino Del Valle, John Chapman, Lieutenant Herrera, and several unidentified deputies served a search warrant at the Maya family home. The deputies held the family of nine at gunpoint while their house was torn apart, and during the search, five of the deputies took Carlos Maya into custody and beat him at the Linwood station. While half a mile south, deputies Craig Ditch, 
Frank Gonzalez, Kevin Garan, Joseph Guzman, Rodolfo Odell, Daniel Ramo, Martin Rodriguez, and several unidentified deputies forcibly entered another home to execute a search warrant. The deputies forcibly held the family of eight inside at gunpoint, including a woman bedridden following a recent surgery. Despite that, deputies lifted her out of bed and forcibly moved her around the inside of the home. While nearby, Sergeant Anderson, Deputies Robert Rifkin, Garon, Holbrook, Nunez, Brandenburg, Costley, O'Hara, and several additional unidentified deputies accosted another Latino man named Sergio Galindo. The deputies then raided Galindo's house, just as other deputies had done to the Maya family. One mile away from that, deputies Gregory Thompson, Brian Steinwan, Jack Niehaus, Sergeants Tommy Harris, Javier Clift, John Carina, and several unidentified deputies forced their way into a third home. They held yet another family at gunpoint as they destroyed the victim's home. As deputies Albert Grotefend, Raymond Esquera, Michael Salvatore, Jack Ramirez, Ruben Garcia, William Roman, Scott Carter, and Richard Orozco, along with several additional deputies, held the Tovar family. And after that, just a few houses down, the same squad of deputies pushed their way into a fourth home, the Calderon family residence. Some deputies held the family at gunpoint, while others tore through their belongings and seized a rifle lawfully owned by one of the residents. Later, it was returned, though in an operable condition. Reuben Calderon was also attacked by deputies Curtis Golden, Daniel Cormier, Alan Ripley, Kelly McMichael, Douglas Gillies, Lieutenant Radilaf, Lieutenant Richard Castro, and 11 additional deputies. Among those who attacked Calderon was Deputy Byron Waney, who had shot and killed William Leonard just two months ago. They choked Calderon with a flashlight, slammed a car door on his legs, and arrested him. But once he arrived at the Linwood station, he was beaten again, and when his mother called to complain about his treatment, the deputies responded by threatening him and launching into another beating. The final incident in the Vikings' Night of Terror. Then, a little over three weeks later, on March 24, 1990, two groups of deputies unlawfully detained a family of seven. Deputies Douglas Gillies, Kevin Kiff, Kelly McMichael, Catherine Harvey, R.A. Reed, and several additional unidentified deputies struck and beat Sergio, Alfredo, Alfonso, and Jose Sanchez with batons and flashlights. Estella and Marta Velez, who were eight months pregnant, Estella and Marta Velez, who was eight months pregnant, were assaulted as well, while a 92-year-old great-grandmother was held for the duration of the detention at the point of a shotgun while she lay in bed. That same day, Richard Hernandez received the same treatment from deputies Timothy Benson, Kevin Kiff, and seven additional deputies. In a little less than a month later, on April 13, 1990, deputies Andre Pinasset, Steve Blair, Ruben Garcia, James Kerrigan, 
Robert Dillard, Charles Barton, and Dan Ramo arrested Raul Gonzalez on a charge of attempted robbery. The deputies took Gonzalez away from nearby family members and beat him, causing serious injuries to his head and body before imprisoning him for 10 days. The next day, Deputy Luna and 12 additional unidentified officers detained and arrested Jesse Melendrez and beat him in the back of their patrol car while he was handcuffed. Then, they brought Melendrez inside, handcuffed him to a swivel chair, and continued beating him. And the day after that, Fernando Martinez was arrested again on April 15, 1990. Sergeant Devine, Deputies Alan Harris, Robert Delgadillo, and four other unidentified deputies arrested Martinez in Ham Park a little over two months after his first arrest. According to the lawsuit, a deputy drove recklessly while Martinez was handcuffed in the back of a patrol car, causing his head to smash into the metal partition separating the front and back seats of the vehicle. And worse yet, once Martinez arrived at the station, deputies beat, choked, and kicked him. Then, on April 17, 1990, deputies Eric Hubner, Gerald Reeves, Dale Huffman, John Carina, Joseph Holmes, and several additional unidentified deputies stopped, detained, and arrested Salvatore Preciado and Rafael Ochoa. Both men were beaten in the face, and one deputy even shoved a loaded revolver into Ochoa's mouth. And just three days after that, nine deputies stopped Preciado and Ochoa again, at which point Preciado was kept in a dark cell and beaten while Ochoa's house was raided without a warrant. Two weeks later, deputies Thomas Rosas, Guy Mato, Daniel Cormier, Alan Ripley, and four other unidentified deputies attacked Darren Thomas, Michael Sterling, Kevin Marshall, and William Scott while they stood in their yard. While on the way to the police station, the deputies drove recklessly to cause Thomas, Sterling, Marshall, and Scott to fall into the hard surfaces in the back of the squad car, and once they arrived at the Linwood station, the men were beaten. According to the lawsuit, Thomas was kicked in the face, choked unconscious twice, and electrocuted with a taser, while Marshall had a shotgun held to his head. The deputies also filed reports with the district attorney's office, falsely stating that Thomas was drinking alcohol on a public street and incorrectly stated that the drinking of alcohol on private property, in public view, was a violation of a Linwood ordinance. Thomas was subsequently charged with battery on an officer and prosecuted, but one year later, the charges were dismissed in a mistrial. Then, on May 5, 1990, deputies Nordskog, Kevin Kiff, and several unidentified deputies shot and killed 15-year-old Lawrence Johnson. And just a week after that, deputies Brian Steinwan and Dan Ramo opened fire on Tracy Batts as he traveled down Atlantic Avenue. And though the deputies said in their reports that Batts was armed, according to the lawsuit, this wasn't true. Two weeks after Johnson's death, Nordskog, Kiff, Cormier, Mann, Patrick Valdez, and Michael Schneider 
detained and arrested Ron Dalton, Eric Jones, and Marcelo Gonzalez. They beat all three men, and one of the deputies shoved a loaded revolver into Dalton's mouth and threatened to shoot, as another deputy put a gun to Gonzalez's head and pulled the trigger, but it didn't fire. In the aftermath, three men saw charges filed against them, but all criminal charges against Dalton and Jones were dismissed. Then, on May 25, 1990, Deputy Ramo made another attempt on Tracy Batt's life. Deputies Pippin and Gregory Thompson of Linwood and Leslie's and Sheehy of the Firestone Station, along with several unidentified deputies, joined Ramo. According to the lawsuit, Ramo and Thompson falsely informed the others that Bats was armed and dangerous, and after a couple hours of searching, Pippin found Bats and shot him in the right leg. After Bats fell, Deputy Leslie instructed Compton Police Officer Zampiello to unleash his attack canine on Bats's injured leg, mauling him. The very next day, on May 26, L.Z. Coleman was chased down by Deputy Paul Arkambault. Arkambault falsely stated that Coleman unlawfully possessed and brandished a gun for which he was charged and eventually acquitted of. But by September 1990, it actually started to look like the Vikings might be held accountable for their gross neglect of the community and the violence they afflicted upon it. Because over two dozen civil rights attorneys compiled these claims and filed the class action civil rights suit in federal court. However, the case was met with skepticism by the local press, and many of the victims' stories were ignored or forgotten. And at the time, many held the belief that police and district attorneys could do no wrong. Most of this skepticism came as a result of some of the victims being affiliated with two local street gangs, Linwood Mob and Young Crowd, who were at war with each other and under attack from the Vikings. But in order to get all the plaintiffs on the same page, Lloyd Polk, who was an older, respected member of Young Crowd, organized a meeting with representatives from each gang to work out a truce in 1990. And though the meeting was a success, it was short-lived, because when Lloyd Polk got home, a car drove up slowly and opened fire. Polk was shot in the chest and killed. However, as it would turn out, it's pretty likely that this murder had nothing to do with the streets. As a sheriff's explorer named Annie H.R. Haley, quote, overheard deputies planning a hit. That night he was killed, they made it look like a drive-by shooting. Which seems like a pretty possible scenario, because the Vikings already had a system in place to carry out drive-bys. And according to a Vikings member, this included keeping a deputy around the corner to come in, and control the scene after the deputy who had done the shooting left. A technique that matched exactly what a witness had seen during the Polk shooting. But after posing this theory for the murder, the lead attorney for the federal lawsuit against the Vikings, David Lynn, was charged by the sheriff's department for allegedly inducing a former sheriff's cadet named Annie Etrahaley into concocting a story implicating deputies in the December 1990 drive-by shooting of Lloyd Polk. Gloria Clark, Polk's mother-in-law, 
told reporters that Haley recanted her story because investigators threatened to send her to prison for 25 years if any deputies were convicted. And before long, the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office began a grand jury investigation into Lynn, which obviously turned up nothing. While the lawyers pursuing the federal lawsuit issued a statement about the investigation, claiming that it was a means to intimidate witnesses and discredit their case. The attorneys also released previously sealed audio tapes and transcripts of Lynn's interviews with Haley, which corroborated his account. On the tapes, Haley expressed frustration that her FBI handler ruined attempts to secretly record incriminating statements from one of the deputies involved in the shooting. After Lynn found out about the grand jury investigation, he waived his right to remain silent and submitted to a three-hour interview with the FBI, an assistant U.S. attorney. Meanwhile, Haley pleaded guilty to providing false information and was sentenced to probation. Deputies at the Linwood station remained incensed at the exposure and sought revenge on David Lynn. Specifically, a deputy named Loy Luna, who's the suspected shooter in the Polk murder, began threatening and attacking Lynn in the streets, even shooting at him while he was near a park with some members of young crowd. And with this clear and deep-seated corruption, as well as the Vikings' willingness to carry out violence on anyone, whether in the department or not, Captain Burt Cueva retired from the force in 1992 after only three years at the Linwood Station. But the violence never stopped, and on May 7, 1995, 24-year-old Jose Nieves was shot in the back during a botched raid. Though there may be more to it than that, as Nieves was also a witness to one of the incidents documented in the federal lawsuit. And just five days later, the community would finally strike back when a young crowd member named Freddy Fuava shot and killed Linwood Deputy Stephen Blair. And finally, just a month after these back-to-back -back murders, the federal trial began. The case went to a jury trial and focused on Darren Thomas, who was taken from his home to the Linwood Station and beaten. But before long, the county moved to settle, and the Platons celebrated their victory. They were awarded $7.5 million, with an additional million and a half earmarked for Sheriff's Department's reforms. However, the Los Angeles Times reported several weeks later that attorneys for the county estimated that if all class-action Linwood cases went to trial, the potential damages and attorney fees could have reached nearly $20 million. The Linwood station was closed in 1994, but was replaced by the newly built Century Station, which will become a hub of deputy gang activity in its own right later on. The litigation also didn't act as a deterrent for the Vikings, and instead, they were emboldened. The department as a whole also didn't adopt any significant reforms, and many of the Vikings were promoted and moved to different jurisdictions and their roster of previous members has come to include Paul Tanaka, a Viking who became the department's second-in-command as undersheriff from 2011 to 2013, 
before resigning due to publicity regarding an FBI investigation into him for obstruction of justice, subsequently being convicted of the crime and sentenced to five years in federal prison. And funny enough, the sheriff that Tanaka served under, named Lee Baca, was also a member of the Vikings. Finally, it's alleged that the sheriff of Kootenai County, Robert Norris, is yet another member of the gang, and by the time the federal lawsuit was wrapped up, the gang had the opportunity to share its tactics with more deputies and bring others into the fold. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show, and tune back in next week for part two of episode 57, where we'll finish the saga of the Vikings, including one man's fight for justice, following one of the biggest frame jobs carried out by the gang, and the case that came as a result, as well as the gang's effect on policing as a whole, including the corruption they helped cultivate, reaching to the highest levels of the sheriff's department. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.